very excited to be here. That I mean, I, I will be reading. So, but then I'm very sorry about that, but we try to keep you awake, maybe relying by, on my Southern Italian cultural background, maybe gesticulating more <laughs> than is needed in this way, you know. Um, the paper I'm presenting today is about the implementation of small-scale enterprises um, and the way how the implementation of small-scale enterprises are reproducing forms of marginality in, uh, in Al Sahaba. It draws from my difficult thesis here at Oxford, in which I explored how development policies transformed the street economy in other suburbs and a city, and how young people involved in the street economy elaborated ways and narratives of living through marginality and political subjugation. And this paper stands between my difficult thesis and my next research project, in which I'm planning to explore the life trajectories and the experiences of construction workers in other suburbs. In doing this, I hope to provide an analysis of the current urban development of the Ethiopian capital by looking at issues and the history of labor, and hence the kind of access that those who are actually building the city have to, to the benefits of the recent economic growth um, of the Ethiopian urban economy. As my default thesis and my new research project share similar analytical concerns, I really look forward to have your comments, and, and I'm really happy to discuss some of the issues I will not talk about this, uh, in this paper. So I start. Uh, the study of marginality, margins, and the marginalized has often been caught by a tendency to examine people at the margins as acting as breakers of the existing social order and makers of new ones. Looked and examined from social and political realities that some scholars locate outside the mainstream society, young people, women, the urban poor, and other marginalized subjects are seen as capitalizing on their liminality to elaborate alternative vision of development and social change with their, it's very difficult for me to pronounce it, entrepreneurialism. Even. In this presentation, I try to put forward a different analytical perspective on marginality. In the next 50 minutes or so, I will take you with me to Arada, the old city center of the Ethiopian capital, looking at the interaction between a group of young adults with past and present engagements in the history economy government officials, development practitioners, and members of youth organizations. More precisely, I would investigate how the implementation of development policies, mainly revolving around the promotion of small-scale enterprises and entrepreneurialism, triggered the reconfiguration of forms of experience of marginality in other suburbs and a city. In doing this, I propose to study marginality as a regime of interconnectedness. That is to say, expanding on Ferguson's arguments that this connection like connection implies a relation and not the absence of relation. I argue that marginalized subjects are not to be seen as social actors. They inhabit and create alternative social, political, and economic realities. Rather, the way the urban poor are connected, integrated, and both the political economy frames and defines the modalities, forms, and experiences of marginality. Starting from this emphasis on interconnectedness, this paper deals with a particular moment in the recent political and social history of urban Ethiopia. At the same time, builds on a comparative appreciation of broader trends in the current reshaping of forms of exclusion and marginality. More precisely, this paper is historically situated in the decade that preceded, preceded the death of Meles Zenawi, the late prime minister of Ethiopia in August, in August 2012, but looks at some of the social effects of the trajectories of development, development that initiated and inspired in the urban sphere. Secondly, I examine the promotion of small-scale enterprises in other suburban a city as a process that is broadly related to the reorganization of labor fairs in the neoliberal age. 
To start with, it's important to point out that where state, where, that where state institutions and development organizations are disengaging from supporting welfare for the poor, entrepreneurialism is being preached and praised as the key that holds the key to survival and social improvement. Within this neoliberal vision of poverty reduction, the promotion of micro and small scale enterprises has become a common component of the policies towards poverty and employment worldwide. In the early 1980s, the experiments of microfinance in Bangladesh, and later on throughout the 1990s, the focus on small and medium enterprises in emerging ASEAN economies came to suggest development organizations that providing finance services to the poor and encouraging entrepreneurship consisted of a valuable and viable strategy of poverty reduction. Since then, the microcredit and microenterprise have risen in the international development agenda. Between 1989 and 2003, the World Bank allocated more than $10 billion to micro and small scale enterprises programs. In Ethiopia, in 2006, the Industry Urban Development Package formally set the policy measure for the promotion of small scale enterprises as means of poverty reduction. A budget of more than 5 billion Ethiopian beer, something like $300 million, was supposed to be allocated to support more than 1.2 million beneficiaries with credit services. <coughs> this is what the policy says in terms of numbers. On top of this, government local institutions are supposed to play a role in the provision of training and business facilities. Small-scale enterprises, the policy stated, were envisioned to become the backbone of a participatory and integrated urban development. In the years that followed, in fact, some of the micro and small-scale enterprises have been directly involved in the construction of low-cost housing. In addition to the construction sector, the policy identified other work areas in the micro and small-scale enterprises. Um, um, other areas in which the micro and small enterprises are, are going to be promoted and established, such as textile and clothing, metal and woodworks, <coughs> food preparation, municipal services, and urban agriculture. One of the main reasons for the popularity of the small scale enterprises in development policies in Ethiopia and beyond is the fact that we're supposed to be a meeting point between the neoliberal focus on promoting the market as the main creator and distributor of resources and the concern with investing the poor people agency. The promotion of the spirit of entrepreneurship thus became the means through which a neoliberal idea of society could meet with the experience of poverty and marginality. In other words, behind the promotion of the small scale enterprises, there is the assumption that by enabling the poor to participate in the market, poverty will disappear and widespread abundance will come about. Such, as an, assum such a, an assumption, however, as Boudier might suggest, is no more than an utopia. Rogali, for instance, pointed out micro-enterprise credit is not just a technical formula for reducing poverty. Rather, it's pervaded and informed by a set of assumptions that describes with the term microfinance evangelism. From the perspective of microfinance evangelists, poverty is understood as a simple matter of income. Therefore, it's believed that providing loans and money through an expansion of financial services, poor people will eventually and naturally improve their lives through the exercise of entrepreneurship. However, contrary to the beliefs of microfinance evangelists, the outcomes of these development initiatives have been far from opening up opportunities of social mobility or even entrepreneurial success. Bateman showed that microfinance schemes have often end up burdening would-be entrepreneurs with a high level of indebtedness, also in those contexts such as Bangladesh and Latin America, where these initiatives were commonly believed to be particularly successful. Likewise, looking in former trustful workers in Tanzania, Rizzo, pointed out that the praising and celebratory narratives of entrepreneurship and informality as the terrains of poor people's empowerment 
falls short in accounting for the fact that bad working conditions, low salaries, and reduced on existence, the existing social rights characterize significant sectors of the informal urban economies. The side effects of the neoliberal discourses on entrepreneurship and the implementation of small-scale enterprises, I might add, are not only a matter of low salaries and low-quality employment. It also has to do with the way social policies and development initiatives are meant to integrate the urban poor in the broader society. In this regard, the work by French sociologist uh, Vacan on how the production of marginality is strictly interlinked with the making of the neoliberal state is very helpful here. First of all, he argued that neoliberalism is fundamentally a political project. It concerns both economic deregulation as a means for expanding the market and the establishment and expansion of a punitive and corrective machine as a modality of conceptualizing and dealing with poverty and social exclusion. In other words, Vacan contended not only a belief in the free market, but also criminalizing and moralizing narratives that see poverty as a consequence of individual behaviors and attitudes encompass the making of the neoliberal state. Within this framework, contra contrary to the common assumption about the entrenchment of the state, the French sociologist pointed out that neoliberalism is actually entailed the re redeployment of the state, especially when criminalizing and corrective social policies targeting the urban poor have been implemented. In particular, a double fold of re a regime of workfare and prison fare is reconfiguring experience of marginality and exclusion at the bottom while advancing the expansion of the neoliberal state. Vacan argues that distinction has been made between undeserving poor at the bottom of a social ladder and deserving poor one step higher. And then he said, expanding machinery of incarceration has targeted the lowest rung to, quote, neutralize and warehouse the supernumerary fraction of the working class. He writes in a very continental way. Uh, one step higher, corrective work schemes have been envisaged as the way to integrate the urban poor into broader society through unskilled, unstable, and badly paid wage labor. And then now we go back to, to Ethiopia. In a similar way, contained in other suburban city, the implementation of entrepreneurship schemes is shaping a, fo is shaping a form of workfare. This advancing the realization of totalitarian form of developmental states while imposing a regime of low quality labor on the marginalized youth. <clears throat> Interestingly, in Ethiopia, the neoliberal development agenda entrepreneurialism has encountered the neoliberal, um, sorry, has encountered and intertwined with the political concerns of the ruling party, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, its commitment to a collectivist ideology, the revolutionary democracy, a political paradigm that is fundamentally pulled apart from notions of neoliberalism and individualism. Informed by Marxist-Leninist idea of democratic centralism and proletarian democracy, the leadership of the EPRDF envisages a society in which the individual is conceptualized to be totally part of the war, highly committed to the common and collective good and development. Secondly, after the relative success of the opposition parties in the 2005 national election and the three demonstrations that took place in the post-electoral period, the ruling party adopted more pervasive strategies of political surveillance. The circumstances shaped the implementation of entrepreneurial uh, schemes. The promotion of small-scale enterprises, in fact, provided local government officials with an institutional tool to control and mobilize the unemployed youth, believed to be the very protagonist of 2005 riots and demonstrations. Put differently by providing employment access to microfinance, as Human Rights Watch reported, the APIDF successfully politicized the development machine, coming to expand its ability to control and mobilize the local population. At the same time, as we will see shortly, these development initiatives were demarcating a place for the poor, 
within an hierarchical idea of society that both the neoliberal emphasis on entrepreneurship and the collectivist visions of the PDF political ideology were contributing to define and realize. In the time that is remaining, I will describe how the promotion of small-scale enterprises was imposing a re particular regime of marginality and interconnectedness on the suburb of marginalized youth. I will explore the narratives and discourses of government officials. Also, I will examine how young people themselves involved in these programs made sense and navigated the being connected to and integrated in the making of a revolutionary democratic and developed Ethiopia. In Addis Ababa, the construction of Dubai-style um, steel and glass buildings and the increased availability of resources and goods in the local markets have triggered the expectations and desires of social mobility and material success. Also, a range of discourses have been shaping how success is narrated and conceptualized in the public arena. For instance, the time of my fieldwork between 2009 and 2010 Newspapers, editorials, NGO life skills training, and talk shows the youth organizations organized with their members focused on the virtues and attitudes of successful businessmen and citizens. To imagine ways and modalities of engaging with and having access to the benefits of the recent economic growth. In a similar way, civic textbooks taught in school had increasing literature on self-help and entrepreneurship, which were dominating street bookstores, were providing indicating formulas for achieving success. For instance, no farm from my field site in the poor neighborhood of Ribakantu, which in Amharic means shouting in vain, the name of the neighborhood. The Verotao Bezabia Sefa at his genius college, a school of entrepreneurship, that basically was charging quite a lot of money for his entrepreneurship training schemes. On the gate of his school, there is this sentence, development is not by chance, it's a matter of a choice. Another sentence reads, a poor man is not a man without money, is a man without a dream. When I interviewed Dr. Verotao, he presented himself as intending to be the richest man in Ethiopia. He told, he told me about his book, Entrepreneurship, an Engine for Sustainable Growth, Development, Prosperity, and Good Governance. In the introduction, Dr. Verotao emphasizes, blaming others for our personal failure is what our achieving people often do. Failure doesn't require explanation. The world doesn't have time to listen to failure explanations. He has a lot of success stories to listen to. Within this broader repertoire of narrations of entrepreneurship and imagination of social success, the implementation of small-scale enterprises, however, didn't necessarily aim to provide the urban poor with an opportunity to have access to and enjoy the material wealth and abundance that, for instance, the city had come to offer. Rather, a sober and ideologically loaded vision of entrepreneurship and social success, which was inspired by the tenets of APFF revolutionary democracy, pervaded the government development initiatives. In fact, on the policy level, small-scale enterprises were not simply designed and described as income-generating activities. They were tools to encourage a broader and larger participation of the population in the, in the realization of urban development, the way the policy was describing it. From the perspective, the participants in micro-enterprise schemes were not supposed to be individual and individualistic entrepreneurs, but development-oriented investors or constructive investors was business activities were to serve the broader economic development of the country. As I came to understand while spending time with government officials at the local level, one of the top priorities of the implementation of micro-enterprises consisted in encouraging and creating such a collective entrepreneurial ethos in the broader society. The Messier, the secretary of the local branch of the EPRDF in a Kebele, which is the lower administrative unit of the Ethiopian states, 
told me that the government developed initiatives were not aiming at providing opportunities for enrichment to single individuals, and that small-scale enterprises were not supposed to be accumulating <coughs> wealth. First of all, the promotion of small-scale enterprises was focusing on the creation of groups and cooperatives. Secondly, small-scale enterprises were designed to enable members of the cooperatives to gather resources and skills that were needed to step up to the level of middle-scale enterprises. In other words, as the MSA suggested, the small-scale enterprises were considered to be an ideologically valuable tool for development, not only because they promoted entrepreneurship, but mainly because they enabled local government institutions to organize groups and cooperatives that through, that through their collectively managed business ventures were meant to embody the development spirit, the revolutionary democratic visions of the EPRDF praised and preached. Working around one of the bazaars that Kebele had organized, to showcase the activities of the small-scale enterprises, Teshome, the manager of one of the local youth offices in my field site, synthesized the ideological underpinnings of the promotion of small-scale enterprises. They say, in Ethiopia, we follow a revolutionary democracy rather than a liberal democracy. This means that we emphasize the group over the individual. We want groups of millionaires rather than individual millionaires. While the majority of material wealth pervaded the urban landscape, NGO programs and civic textbooks preached the idea of successful citizenship and entrepreneurship, and government meetings praised collectivist ethos of development-oriented investors, the implementation of small-scale enterprise schemes was not always effective in either opening up opportunities for personal enrichment or creating a development-oriented business venture. In this regard, an examination of the success and failures of the small-scale enterprises program in my field site could offer interesting insights into how these development initiatives were reproducing patterns of social differentiation and social exclusion. Kazin was a member of the Youth Forum, one of the youth organizations that aimed at bridging the gap between the, between the youth and the government institutions. When I met him, he was in his late teens. He had just started the training prog program for producing stoves. An Italian NGO, COPI, Cooperazione Internazionale, had funded initiatives and the local government office provided the facilities and the trainers. Casin was one of the trainees selected by the Kebele officials, the government officials, because of his membership in one of these youth organizations. Ask him what he thought about his future. Casin had um, a diploma at the vocational college as an electrician, and he wanted to invest in this. And he said, I want to be a businessman and a good technician. His plan was to produce stoves for a while in order to gather resources that would allow him to engage in a more profitable business as an electrician. After the training ended, Kazin and his colleagues began working on the stove business. When I met him a couple of months afterwards, things were not going well for Kazin. Initially, 15 people had been involved in his enterprise. After a few months, they were already down to 10. The others had gone to work as a shoeshine boys or to sell gum and cigarettes on the streets. They were earning, they told me, between 30 or 40 bir a day, something like 1.8 and 2.4 dollar a day, which was much more than Kazin and his colleagues were earning. And then he told me, in the last days we made 50 bir, which means like 3 dollar. It means 2.5 bir a day for us, which is like a few cents. It's not even enough to pay the coffee that I'm drinking now with you. Met Kazin several times. Uh, in the following months, and things were not going any better. And then he told me, copy the Italian NGO, lied to us, we don't have money to go on. They even tried to make some market linkage, but it didn't work out. Then a guy from GTZ, the German corporation, came and told us that he wanted to buy our stoves for Dengera, the Ethiopian pancake, for exporting them outside. It didn't come again. Eventually, Kazin Enterprise closed down. 
However, he was not the only one in trouble. Other small scale enterprises were going through similar issues and challenges. Local government officials had also been promoting entrepreneurship for women by setting up small scale enterprises in catering and food processing. I interviewed some of the women working in these small scale enterprises. One explained to me that the KBLA, the local government office, was not helping them at all. And she said, Our KBLA is weak. We talk about democracy, this exists only in theory. If Malice will come here, I will tell him everything. And then we started with 1,700 beer, it was something like 1,000, oh, sorry, $100. We shared the cost. We brought from our houses all the stuff that you see here. She was indicating tables and chairs and everything. And we have just money and food for our living. We are not going forward. A woman working in another small scale enterprise complained that the place that the KBLA had provided for them was too far from the main roads, so the customers could not easily know of their existence. And she said, there is no business around here. The relative, um, um, Failure of these cooperatives, however, was to some extent in contrast with the success of other enterprises. These were <coughs> those very few enterprises that had been established at least two to three years before I started my fieldwork. These were mainly composed of people who were already in, already in the business at the time uh, they formed government-supported small-scale enterprises. Among this was Rashid Enterprise. Rashid is in his late 20s, is a carpenter, is also an active member of the Youth Forum, one of these youth organizations. And he was always holding a book on entrepreneurship when he was talking to me. His cooperative was established in 2007. We had work, we are just looking for a place. Through the youth forum, we organized a Mahaber, which is like an association, but in Ethiopia is also a religious kind <coughs> of organization. And they gave us this place. In the years that followed, Rashid and his colleagues applied for a loan of 25,000 bir, is something like $1,500. They used the money to produce furniture for a construction project that the government assigned to them. When asking him how the business was going, he replied, well, we are not giving work in government projects, we do by ourselves. We sell to a showroom in the city. I got a, I got a good experience in this. I've made some connection with rich people. A certain group of successful enterprises is to be found on the street, the cooperatives of parking guys, or rather car attenders. The parking guys had been expressly established in 2008 to give jobs to their employee youth. The reasons for their success lie in the fact that they didn't need any capital facilities, particular skills and training. Caleb, who is a member of the Youth League, a youth that, that is the youth wing of the ruling party, is also a member of the Youth Association, that is a mass association whose aim was to organize activities and cultural events for the youth. He himself was also a manager of a cooperative of parking guys in my field site. And he suggests me, he provided me with an interpretation of the success of the parking guys. And then he say, you just need some money to print the tickets and then everything is human labor. Now stressing that working as a parking guy was actually much better than engaging with other microcredit activities such as food processing, <coughs> carpentry, metal work and chicken breeding or whatever, all needing capital and training. However, the other side of the coin was that being a parking guy didn't pay very well in absolute terms. Members of another cooperative, the some of my key informants, Ibrahim and Said, whose stories I will tell you later, were earning something around 400, 800 bir a month, something like 25 and 48 dollar a month. Another group in my field site was earning less than 250 bir a month, something like 15 dollar a month. These were far from being desirable salaries, but many people among the parking guys appreciated the fact that this was stable money they could rely on every month. The successes and the failures of the old and new enterprises are extremely relevant in order to understand the actual impact of government social policies on marginalization. 
It's clear that most scale enterprises were not necessarily in opening up new social opportunities. Rather, their implementation was reproducing pre-existing patterns of, of exclusion and social differentiation. In this regard, the success of Rashid lies in his ability to use and mobilize the resources provided by the KBLA to build on his pre-existing skills and networks in the carpentry business. In the case of Kazin and the women of the catering cooperatives, the establishment of small-scale enterprises didn't open up new opportunities because the new entrepreneurs had no networks and, and resources to build on. All they had was the local government office. <coughs> Finally, the fact that the success of the parking guys consisted in the regularity of their low income and depended on the unskilled nature of their work <coughs> suggested that the establishment of small-scale enterprises was failing to open up any new kinds of social opportunity for the employer youth but was, ex was extremely successful in reproducing, cementing, or even furthering the pre-existing conditions of, of marginality. So like when throughout my, all my, my, my field work, I often interviewed government officials working at the Kebele level, the city bureau and different ministries asking them about small scale enterprise programs. I wanted to bring my case study to their attention in order to show the contradiction of the programs they were implementing. I soon realized the contradictions in these development initiatives were indeed visible and evident to them. However, government officials explained the failure of these small-scale enterprises by evoking the alleged lack of determination and spirit of entrepreneurship of the youth involved in these programs. For instance, after I, to I talked about some of the failures and contradictory successes of these small-scale enterprises in my field site, the official who worked for the microcredit as small-scale enterprise agency at the city level responded, yes, I know, this is not good, is it? These guys don't have a vision. Other government officials gave me similar interpretation. When I went to the youth office at the city level, government officials engaged in a conversation about the fact that many young people are not interested in working hard. What young people want, one of the employees said, is, go, is to gain money and profit, profit immediately. And for this reason, they often easily get frustrated because he concluded intensive work is needed to run these enterprises. Interestingly, the explanation that government officials were giving to account for the failure of the small-scale enterprises mirrored the narratives that they themselves were using to describe why young people were not engaging with government employment programs in the first place. In speaking of wrong cultural attitudes and lack of motivation, government officials portrayed the unemployed youth as being the only ones responsible for their poverty and exclusion. In a similar way, by referring to the lack of entrepreneurial skills and attitudes, the working youth employed in government's most skill enterprises were blamed for the persistence of their condition of marginality. The resilience of these narratives of the lazy unemployed youth and the indecisive working youth, I argue, was rooted in the broader, wider understanding the government institutions had about marginality and exclusion, and more importantly, in the assumptions about what a person should and could, what a poor person should and could do. Put differently, blaming the unemployed youth and the working youth for their condition of marginality and exclusion was not just a way of making sense of the outcomes of the small-scale enterprise schemes. It was a discourse about the position the urban poor should occupy in the broader society. To better appreciate this is worth considering the fact that government officials themselves, when they were not preaching about the bad attitudes of the urban youth and praising the employment opportunities that the local government uh, was offering, we're fully aware of the fact that these jobs were not as desirable as they were portraying them to me and to the youth at the government meetings. For instance, when I asked government officials if they themselves would be willing to do work as a parking guy or squaring stones in a government construction site, some of them suddenly became very frank with me. A Kabbalah official that I met at the Sub City Youth and Sports Office replied straight away, I can't do this. 
Another in a more defensive way replied, well, the way towards the office is open. These guys, um, perhaps some guys at the construction sites have degrees, could compete with them. Our job is difficult. Only the best get it. In this context where government narratives were defining what the what poor should and could do, similar to what Bacan argued in his analysis of workfare and prison fare, the promotion of small scale enterprises was reconfiguring experiences of marginality and exclusion while advancing the realization of the political projects that encompass the making of the developmental revolutionary democratic state. In the words echoing Farquhar's famous quotes on the failure of the prison, the establishment of small scale enterprises failed to provide opportunities for social improvement, but they did succeed in producing a specific type, politically and economically less dangerous, and occasionally usable form of marginality. In fact, as they may say, the secretary of a local branch of APRDF emphasized and the outcomes of the small scale enterprise schemes in my field su suggested, these development initiatives were not meant to provide the means for social, of social mobility for marginalized subjects. They were delimitating and demarcating the role that the poor had to play with the labor in the broader vision of revolutionary democratic Ethiopia. In this regard, while talking about cobblestone work, that is one of the employment opportunities that the government provided for the unemployed youth, mainly consisting of squaring stones for government construction sites. The showman, the political uh, official at uh, the youth office, they told me about groups of millionaires. With a certain tone of cynical realism, made sense of this connection between giving bad quality jobs to marginalized subjects and delivering development. And they say many of these guys are drug addicts. They want the job and easy money. They work in the morning and they spend it at the chat bit. Chat is a mild stimulant, the chat bit is a chat chewing house. Their behavior is difficult, but they are in the country, we cannot kick them out. As long as they are loyal and they work hard is fine, they are addicted, but the stones they are squaring are useful for development of our country. So did marginalized young people accept this image of drug addicts working for the collective development of the country, or alternatively of lazy and decisive youth? Ibrahim is a man in his early 30s. When I met him at the beginning of 2010, he was working as a parking guy, one of the cooperatives that the government had organized to give jobs to the unemployed youth. Before joining the parking guys, Ibrahim had been surviving by combining different kinds of street activities, such as thieving, cheating, fencing stolen goods, and dealing with drugs. At two different stages of his life, he had managed to participate in more mainstream economic businesses. He had worked as a manager of a video parlor in his early 20s, until he was arrested for showing illegal pornographic movies. Yes. Very <laughs> legal in, like, in the early 1990s. After a few years back on the street in his late 20s, with the help of his mother and the support of the local government bureaucracy, he managed to open a small shop on the street selling shoes. He failed to pursue his business, he admitted, because he ended up squandering the money he earned. Looking at his life, Ibrahim often described himself as a thug or an arada, a street smart guy. In his narratives and the ones of many of his, of his friends and peers, smartness and toughness constitute the paradigms and social skills that were needed in order to navigate one's condition of poverty and exclusion while elaborating ideas of self revolving around concept of respect and self-worth. The time of my fieldwork is job at the cooperative of parking guys was providing Ibrahim with a salary between 400 and 800 bir a month, something like 24 and 48 dollars a month. Although it enabled him to claim a form of economic independence from his parents in terms of food and enjoyment, including the purchase of charts, it was from, far from opening up real opportunities for social improvement. And then he told me, now we are all workers, Ibrahim said, to make sense of his current position as a parking guy in a, parking guy in a small scale enterprise. 
As I get to know him better of my time in others, I understood that with this sentence in brain was not necessarily saying that this muscle enterprise parking guy transformed him from a thug into a worker. Ibrahim and many amongst his friends and peers, in fact, continued to see themselves as a thugs and street smart guys and hustler. Rather, by saying that they were workers, they were expressing a range of claims and requests. At the same time, they were making sense of the way government development policies have reconfigured the terrains of the social navigation. Looked from the streets of other suburbs and a city, the implementation of small scale enterprises in particular the institutional cooperative of parking guys, were perceived to be a tool in the hands of the local government bureaucracy and the ruling party to repress, control, and mobilize. The memory of the, of the repression that followed the riots and demonstrations in 2005 was still alive on the streets of Addis Ababa. The death of 200 people and the detainment of 30,000 in Addis Ababa alone reminded Ibrahim and many among his friends that the ruling party had the capacity to repress and punish on a very large scale. Secondly, even though street life in Al Sahaba had historically constituted the terrain of political confrontation, repression, and mobilization, the politics of control of the ruling party after 2005 post-election violence was perceived, perceived to be a novelty because of its unprecedented pervasiveness. Indeed, the institution of the cooperative of parking guys was not the only component of the ruling party politics of the street. When I was in the field, groups of minibus towns were undergoing a government-led process of formalization that eventually transformed uh, them in groups of private investors. Meanwhile, the local government bureaucracy had just established community policing committees that were mainly composed of members of the ruling party that functioned as a first source of information on crime and unrest in the neighborhoods. In this circumstance, in paraphrasizing Vic, street workers coped in the political transformation on the street. In doing this, even though they didn't have access to any forms of social mobility, they at least were trying to gain a politically safe and secure position from which they could carry out their lives. Said at the time of my fieldwork a parking guy in Ibrahim's cooperative, explained his reason for joining the parking guys. Said in the past had been a snatcher and knew that he would end up in prison if he continued to, if he continued to steal mobile phones on the street. Furthermore, his girlfriend was working in Dubai, and he told me he didn't want to see her from behind bars when she returned. Hence, he realistically concluded, why should you steal if you can get the same money by working? Also, by describing themselves as workers, Ibrahim and his colleagues were elaborating narratives about the reconfiguration of their condition of marginality. They were refusing the rhetoric of entrepreneurship that characterized the narratives of government institutions and NGOs, while elaborating a range of claims and requests using notions and ideas of wage labor. This became, it became clear to me when I attended the meetings and, that NGOs and government institutions organized to promote and discuss the initiatives with the local youth. Fundamental tension between narration of entrepreneurship and claims for wage labor encompassed the interactions between development practitioners, government officials, and the local youth. Child Fund is an international NGO active in my field site, which alongside the support for entrepreneurship, provided scholarships and covered medical expenses for children enrolled in their programs. As one of the employees of this NGO told me, Child Fund aimed to address the problems of, of children and youth holistically. As part of defining the new projects, NGO workers held consultation sessions to listen to the ideas and suggestions from the local youth. I attended one of the meetings. The conversation between the development worker leading the session of, and the young people in the room became particularly dynamic when the issues concerning training, life skills, and employment opportunities were brought to the table. 
while the development work had tried to encourage debate about youth employment and income generating activities without talking about specific individual cases, some of the participants kept on talking about themselves and making explicit, re explicit requests to the development worker. One of the young men at the meeting, for instance, insisted that the child fund should have helped him to get a driving license. Another participant emphasized what he thought was a contradiction in the development programs of the NGO. He explained that he had attended an entrepreneurship training scheme through a child fund, but after completing the scheme, he had not been granted a loan to start his small-scale enterprise. He complained, how could I work by just taking an entrepreneurship course without having the money to start my enterprise? Finally, when a development worker asked the participant, let's say that child fund gives you training, what should we expect from you? When Dimo, a former street hustler and a parking guy in his jokey style replied, first give us the opportunity and then you will see. The debate between the development workers and the young people invited to consultation session should not be understood simply as an extension of a form of patrimonialism in the development industry. Development workers and the young people were not simply negotiating a potential relationship between patron and clients. Rather, the most obvious dynamic of the consultation session was the tension between two fundamental uh, understandings of labor and employment. On the one hand, the NGO was offering life skills training as a fundamental aspect of the creation of a, uh, I quote, a skill that involved youth, unquote, engaging in business entrepreneurial activities. On the other hand, young people in the room were straightforwardly asking for jobs or training opportunities, such as obtaining a driving license in order to work as drivers, something more likely to provide them with opportunities for wage labor. The reason for this agreement, I emphasize, is not that young people at the particular, at the particular meeting were lazy and not willing to embark in hard work and entrepreneurial activities. Rather, it had to do with the fact that entrepreneurship schemes were not providing the results expected by other development workers or the participants in the schemes, in the schemes themselves. Kazin, for instance, the young man I told you um, about before in his enterprise, could not get his head around the reasons why Copy, an Italian NGO that organized the training schemes in which he participated, was promoting these entrepreneurship schemes in the first place. A few years ago, the same NGO, Kazin told me, had organized other kinds of training schemes, mainly focusing on tourist management and food preparation. Some of his neighbors had joined the trainings and now worked as, a co as cooks with a salary that Kazin argued amounted to 3,000 bir a month, something like $180 a month. It was significantly higher than the money that he earned through his small-scale enterprise. The fundamental tension between the NGO drive to promote entrepreneurship and the young people's uh, expectation of wage labor was also present in relations between the parking guys and the government officials. In early January, the Kebele Youth Office organized a youth conference to meet the youth of the area and talk about the activities and initiatives that are being implemented and organized. Parking guys, members of youth organizations and participants in small scale enterprises attended the meeting in the hall to listen to the speeches of the Kebele officials. That day I was sitting with Ibrahim, Said and other parking guys in the back rows of the meeting hall. It looked like kind of the mountain discourse of uh, what's called uh, yeah, like, um, anyway, something like the, the, I don't remember the name, anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, so um, on the stage, someone thanked the Kebele, saying that because of them, he now had the job. Someone else invited the Kebele uh, to make an effort to provide entertainment for the young people. As the meeting went on, Minisha parking guy in Ibrahim's group began to rapidly lose his patience, and he kept repeating, these people are just talkative. Lo look at what we have to do. We have to give 30% of the money that we get to the government. This is crazy. In the second half of the meeting, a, a cable officials gave a long, exhausting speech on the cobblestone. 
The cobblestone, as I mentioned, is one of the employment opportunities within construction sector the government policy have opened up for the unemployed youth. It consists of squaring stones to be used for building roads across the country. At the time, three months after I started my fieldwork, my mark was still very basic. And after a while, I lost focus, as I however did most of the people who sat with me in the back row of the home. Ask Fuad, a, a friend of mine in parking guys, and a young tailor working in the shop in my field set, what the speech was about. And he replied to me in Amari, Ulunagarzala Cobblestone, Cobblestone Beacher. It's basically just about Cobblestone, just Cobblestone. Eventually the speech ended. The people at the Kabbalah provided a piece of breakfast bread and soft drink to those who actually had survived the speech. <laughs> the, hall, the hall was quite full, nearly 400 people had shown up. Tashama, the manager of the Kebele Youth Office, who had organized the event, said that the meeting was without doubt a success. We had a couple of people who thanked us because of the job we have done. This is good. It means that we have achieved something. This meeting, as we, with many others that attended when I, when I was in others, was a success in terms of the number of people who had turned up. It showed the ability of the government officials, as Tashama said, to mobilize young people. However, the fact that many criticisms and comments were being whispered and shared away from the stage where cabinet officials and organizers were sitting reveals that government officials were not all that successful in shaping and molding the development-oriented youth to the rhetoric on self-determination and responsibility. In fact, the speech on the cobblestone was too hard to follow because it was a fundamental in, in a discourse that was dressing up a reality that many of the people in the whole, the cabinet officials included, understood and knew. The cobblestone, which involves squaring stones, is just like attending cars on the street. It provides, it provides few, if any, real social opportunities or means of addressing the condition of social marginality and exclusion, which most of my informants leave. Moreover, many new small-scale enterprises we have seen have often failed. When they did not, such jobs provided little else than a means for reproducing one's condition of marginality, low wage and bad work conditions. The content of the complaints being whispered at the meeting was, however, very interesting. Isha complained about the 30% the parking group had to give to the Kebele in taxes, as well as the criticism of the speech on the cobblestone, expressed the fundamental tension between the government emphasis on entrepreneurialism and the young people framing of the employment schemes as wage labor. Similar to the request for, driving, driving, for a driver license in a conversation about entrepreneurship and life training, scheme, life training skills, Talking about taxes was a direct and precise reference to the relationship the workers were forging with the government through working on the employment schemes. Discussing taxes emphasized the contract embedded in the idea of being a worker, rather than independence and self-empowerment stressed in the rhetoric of entrepreneurship. Remarks on taxation, however, were not, consider were not considered by government officials to be per pertinent to the objectives and the aims of the meeting. When Ibrahim stood up and said what Minisha had been repeating for hours, a cable official at the meeting skated over this issue, simply stating that this was not a problem that concerned them, but a matter that only the city government could address. In this context, the refusal of my informants to accept the narratives of entrepreneurship and the emphasis on wage labor, taxation and labor conditions revealed that being becoming workers was a precise statement about the condition of marginality. On the streets of Addis Ababa and a city, being workers and categories of wage labor constitute the narratives and paradigms that my informants employ to express claims, grievances, and requests, negotiating the terms and the modalities on their role of a politically mobilized and development-oriented youth. And then the conclusion. In her research on the favelas in Rio de Janeiro, Perlman pointed out there is a substantial difference between the myth of marginality, 
that this idea that marginal, marginalized sectors of the society inhabit and live in an alternative and parallel social and political economic realities. And uh, I quote, the utility of having a large portion of the population in a marginalized situation. In this presentation, I argue that the emphasis on the liminal entrepreneurship of the urban poor does not only fall short in accounting for the way marginality is produced and navigated, but also risk buying into the neoliberal narratives, discourses, and policies that are actually triggering the current reshaping of exclusion. Secondly, I examine how the promotion of microfinance and small scale enterprises schemes are resulting in the emergence of regimes of workfare. These are fostering the realization of political projects that are recrafting the configuration of power and social relations which the making of the state is grounded in the neoliberal age. Thirdly, my informant's refusal of narratives of entrepreneurship and the engagement with notions of wage labor reveal that marginalized subjects are expressing very clear grievances and claims about the nature of their condition of marginality and the kind of connections they have with the broader society. Our ability to discern between the myth of marginality and the marginality as a social and political process is central not only for our ability to understand power relations at the time of neoliberalism, but also to identify platforms for potential social change. 